Welcome to Thesis, a podcast about trends in higher education systems in international spheres, exploring the field of higher education across the world. I'm your host, Kelly Davis. Today on Thesis, we speak with Dr. Tracy Lachica Buenavista about the term used in the U.S. context, 1.5 generation college student. Dr. Buenavista is a professor of Asian American Studies at the California State University, Northridge, where she also teaches courses on educational leadership and is the co-principal investigator for the CSUN Dream Center, the Asian American Studies Pathways Project, and the Ethnic Studies Education Pathways Project. Dr. Buenavista has conducted ample research on Asian American student experiences in higher education. And in this episode, we discuss her work focusing on the experiences of 1.5 generation college students whose parents immigrated to the United States from the Philippines. Hello, welcome to another episode of Thesis. I have the honor of being here today with Dr. Tracy Lachica Buenavista. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So today we're going to be talking about a concept that will come up a couple of times throughout this season, talking about Mm -hmm. first-generation students, and that is the 1.5 generation student. So Mm -hmm. let's start. If you can tell us what this term means, I'm also curious, do we credit you for coining this term, or is it something that's been mentioned further back? Actually, in defining it, I'll sort of clarify it where it comes from, right? The research I've done is actually on 1.5 generation college student that is related to but different than 1.5 generation immigrants, which is the concept that a lot of people I think are more familiar with. So I'll kind of break it down really. The term 1.5 generation college student actually refers to students who have at least one parent who graduated from college, but not in the U.S., and, and, you know, I, I just have to say that I'm studying this concept from a U.S. context, right? Typically, someone is not considered first gen if they have a college-educated parent. And that's, again, in a U.S. context. This understanding doesn't consider the context of students whose parents might have gone to college, but in a system outside of the U.S. So these are students who are formally identified by institutions, as second generation college students, but they experience a pathway to and through college like their first gen college students. Now, where do I get the term 1.5 generation college students? I actually adapted the concept from sociological discourse on migration. So in sociology, in a migration context, first generation folks are the first to migrate to a country. Uh, Second generation folks are the children born in that country to immigrant parents. There is a phenomenon of 1.5 generation immigrants. These are folks who are in, again, my context, born outside the U.S., but they migrated in their adolescence. And so their acculturation process uh, overlap, but they're also very distinct from the first gen and the second gen. (laughs) And so I share this because I want to make clear that while they're related, 1.5 generation college students is a concept that's defining context of higher education and 1.5 generation immigrants is defined in a context of migration. That's what inspired the concept. And we we could talk about it more, but I I just wanted to make that kind of clear. Thank you so much for breaking it down because Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fascinating. There's a systematic part of it, right? Kind of immigration systems, our education systems, Mm -hmm. and then just the experiences wrapped up in those and how they become kind of sociological phenomena. 
I am wondering, do you perceive international students who come to the U.S. as maybe fitting into this category if they have parents who completed higher education? Or do you think that's a separate topic? I, I think there's probably, I would have to look at it more in depth. Or I would encourage somebody else to look at it more in depth because I, I definitely think there's likely some sort of overlap. But I think the 1.5 generation immigrant experience is really defined from the fact that these are migrants who came to a country while they were still in their developmental stages of life. And so the acculturation process for them looks very different than someone who migrates to another country in their adulthood. So I, I think there's definitely some overlap, just sort of depending on when folks migrated, right? So an international student, I teach in Asian American studies, and there's a phenomenon that we call parachute kids. These are kids who migrate to the U.S., typically in their teenage years for purposes of schooling in particular. And so I would say their migration histories are a little bit more complex than international students who migrate, for example, for graduates. So it's complicated. Migration's complicated. Education's complicated. And I think, I think we need to understand those contexts better in education, right? We sort of treat immigrant and migrant students sort of in a monolith. And we don't really realize how different immigrants are depending on um, the context of their migration. Thank you for that answer. I think those are really good points. And I think in our conversation now, we'll kind of, it'll bring out some of those kind of nuances, at least for mm -hmm. the 1.5 generation college students. And maybe in another episode further down the line, we'll <laughs> have somebody who can speak to, because that's a really good point. I mean, it's different when you, when you are the one not technically emigrating or immigrating to the country because mm -hmm. uh, that's not technically what being a, on a student visa is when your parents are the ones who have done that. And so you aren't going through maybe the technical pieces. I think there's the technical pieces just in terms of sort of uh, knowledge, right, uh, of the whole process. There's a different level of preparation. But I think, you know, for a lot of kids, it's not necessarily their choice, right? And then at the same time, yeah. access access to resources. When you're a young person and you migrate with your family, you're not really making the determinations of how your capital is being used um, or how your capital is being generated. But when you are migrating by yourself as a student, you know, those are decisions you're making. So true. So what led you to research this topic in the first place? And I know that your research has primarily looked also at Filipino 1.5 generation mm -hmm. college students. What brought you to this path? Yeah, I'm a Filipino 1.5 generation college student and second generation Filipino in the U.S. So my mom was college educated in the Philippines. So she is a Filipino immigrant, the first generation to the U.S., but she carried with her this college education. And she was very prideful of, of her college education from the Philippines. Um, but she had zero experience with American education, both K-12 and higher ed. And I just really remember my educational journey was defined by this constant like emotional support from my mom to go to college, but I had to seek the more social and material support outside of my family to actually learn how to do that, right? How to go to college. I started to research this phenomenon because I realized that my experience was shared by a lot of Filipino kids who are also second generation in the U.S. So in the U.S., among some communities of color, there's an, what we call an immigrant paradox, 
I don't know if you've heard this term before, but it's a, it's a sociological not, term. So. In the U.S., among some communities of color, there's an immigrant paradox. Uh, an immigrant paradox is when later generations of a community actually experience a decline in different social measures, uh, education, health, etc., than their first generation immigrants who came before them. So for Filipinos in the U.S., there's this educational paradox where many of our immigrant parents have college degrees from the Philippines. But as U.S.-born children, we have lower rates of educational access and attainment. And it's typically due to a bunch of different factors. But the one I tend to focus on, right, is racism in schools. Filipinos are typically overlooked in conversations on underserved students because in the U.S. we're racialized as Asian-American. And Asian Americans are stereotyped as quote unquote model minorities. This is a stereotype where, you know, people, they say that people of color um, have experienced academic and economic success because of their hard work, right? But that's really like a, a narrative that was created about Asian Americans not by Asian Americans. There's been decades of research that debunked the model minority myth, but higher ed scholars and practitioners really, you know, are unfamiliar with that work. And they often enable the educational barriers experienced by Filipinos and other Asian Americans who actually need institutional support. In the U.S., Asian Americans aren't deemed historically underrepresented in colleges and universities, although they might come from low-income backgrounds, if they report that their parents have a college degree and are not allowed to detail that their parents are foreign educated, they are inevitably deeming themselves ineligible for the resources that are actually designed to counter those barriers to college, right? So I think for a lot of Filipino families, there are a lot of immigrant parents really, like my mom, were really prideful for their college education, not realizing that their college education and our inability to say, hey, it doesn't translate fully to U.S. system actually disadvantages their kids when they go to college. I think this is a good point perhaps to to talk a little bit about those different uh, different experiences and I guess um, sources of knowledge. In this podcast, we do try to look at different systems around the world. And I think this is a really interesting way to perhaps look at the the system in the Philippines and say, okay, yeah, so the parents are coming, they've been educated, but uh, at the same higher level, but there's, there must be differences that just don't, I don't know if not, don't translate as necessarily the right way to say it, but just, you know, the, mm -hmm. they become gaps in knowledge because it's just a different system in a, in a different place. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of those differences are between the higher education systems in the Philippines and in the U.S.? To sort of answer that question, I, I want to talk about like some like U.S., Philippine history, but also function of education, right? Uh, for those who aren't familiar, it, it, there's a real irony around education in the, in the Philippines, right? And, and the irony of education in the Philippines is that it was an actual primary tool 
for American colonization of the Philippines. So the Philippines was among the first formal colonies of the United States. As a colony of the United States, the, the U.S. government actually implemented a white supremacist education uh, that was used in the Philippines to indoctrinate Filipinos to become what they called, quote unquote, good U.S. subjects. And this included the use of English as the language of instruction in the Philippine classroom. Even after Philippine independence, the Philippine education system was still used to develop the Philippines into what some people call a labor brokerage state. I want to credit uh, sociologist uh, Dr. Robin Rodriguez for really exploring this phenomenon of a labor brokerage state. This is where uh, post-secondary education is in large part designed to prepare Filipinos to actually work abroad as overseas workers, and it's an economic strategy for the Philippines. So in the Philippines, they will prepare Filipinos to actually be educated to leave the Philippines and seek work elsewhere, including the United States. And this has resulted in you know, the Philippines getting more than $2.5 billion in remittances from Filipino overseas workers. A result of the system, besides sort of the, this remittances industry, is a system of highly skilled Filipinos in the diaspora, including in the U.S., where Filipino immigrants are seen as desirable workers because of their educational attainment and their familiarity with the English language, right? Yet, while higher levels of education are often what enabled their entry into the U.S. as labor, Rarely ever are their foreign degrees honored in the U.S. workforce. Uh, so many Philippine college-educated immigrants often end up working in lower-paid jobs that aren't commensurate with their skills or their training. It, we call this underemployment. In other words, while higher educational attainment has facilitated the ability for Filipinos to immigrate, their education doesn't translate into social or material benefits such as per capita income. Now, how does this translate to the 1.5 generation college student? Well, many of these workers, there are parents um, who saw that educational attainment enables mobility in the form of migration to the U.S. And despite their college degrees not actually translating into financial or navigational capital, parents are able to pass on aspirational capital, which I think is what drives a lot of students to pursue higher education because they see the sacrifices that their parents have made. So when you say aspirational capital, you're really talking about the desire and the kind of gumption um, to, to pursue higher education themselves. Exactly. Um, I think a lot of times for Filipino for Filipino kids, I, I think they see successful higher educational attainment as sort of their responsibility to make up some of this lost social and financial capital that their that their parents, you know, had to let go of in the process of actually migrating to the U.S. So there's a lot more research that can be done in this area. I, I think a lot of us can sort of relate to our desire to pursue education as a goal that's more collective than individual. 
interesting. I don't know if you will be able to answer this, but I'm just thinking about how the, okay, so the system in the Philippines was a colonization tool. After independence, it adapted clearly, like it changed slightly, or it just went in maybe a slightly different direction than the U.S. system, if I'm understanding this correctly. And the primary purpose was to train people to go abroad. I I, I understand the the point about the the degree itself wasn't counting, um, wasn't kind of regarded this to be the same, even though it stemmed from the same mm-hmm. system. In terms of the students themselves, 1.5 generation college students figuring out how to go about higher education, are the differences primarily in kind of the focuses that they would end up or like the majors they ended up pursuing or just Mm. kind of the general goal for after higher education? I guess I'm wondering when we talk about for first generation students, the hidden curriculum and the underlying things that aren't known, are there any kind of differences there that we can point to? I think the same applies. I think that there is a gap of knowledge transmission from Filipino college-educated parents to their U.S.-born kids pursuing college in the U.S. because the systems are different. You can almost say the same for folks who, you know, are trying to navigate college um, in different states, right? Like, you know, maybe maybe that's a bad example. But even in the US, there there's different sort of aspects of knowledge you need to possess to access Ivy League colleges versus community colleges or colleges on the East Coast versus colleges on the West Coast. And I think, you know, so sort of take that and then exacerbate it. Now we're talking about different country systems, right? Different functions of college. So I think, for example, in, in the Philippines, you know, you're encouraged to go to college because if you don't go to college, you really don't have any other economic options. But one of the primary economic options of being college educated in the Philippines is to actually leave. I think in the U.S., there is a desire to go to college as a function of individual mobility. Again, the acquisition of increased capital, regardless of sort of what social class you're coming from. Um, But we know that in the U.S., higher ed is part of that whole process of social reproduction, where if you have access to to wealth or capital, college is only going to enhance your ability to maintain that capital. And I think for first generation college students who often go to college with a lack of monetary capital, it's their opportunity to start to get into a system to be able to participate in capitalism. Now, I don't know, in, in both instances, education is sort of seen as a capitalistic endeavor, right? But I think in the U.S. context, it's like an individual endeavor. And in the Philippines, it's it's one that's more collective. That's super interesting. And I think your point about kind of comparing it to just in applying to different types of institutions in the U.S. context is a really good one. And it made me think of kind of a a small debate I had with a classmate who were from different parts of California. And Mm -hmm. we were, I mean, this, I think, says something about maybe the context in which we grew up, but we were debating which University of California schools were 
harder to get into. And we were <laughs> yeah. in a disagreement about UC San Diego. And I don't know, I don't know about this. Um, I'm, I just kind of was guessing that maybe mm-hmm. what she was told in this in San Diego County being in that system was different from what I was told being in Northern California because maybe there was some sort of UC San Diego was going to take more students from San Diego County, for example. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. true, but it just kind of lends to, yeah, you have just these differences in terms of where even different types of institutions are looking for students in the admissions process. So I didn't think about how granular it is, but it really is just <laughs> so detailed. It- It is because so, for example, I work in the California State University system where our priority are what we call the students are located in our local region, right? So those are students in the surrounding communities of the actual university. They call that tier one. Then there's tier two, which are students, you know, sort of located on the perimeter (laughs) of that immediate geographic area. But the reason why we look at tier one versus tier two students is because the demo- com- the demographics of the communities. If, you know, my institution wanted more racial diversity, we actually have to look at more tier two students, those who are not living in the immediate communities surrounding our university, because that's where there are more students of color, more students from social, you know, soci- uh, socioeconomically challenged backgrounds, um, et cetera. People weren't really sort of being intentional in, in those ways for a long time, which sort of resulted in some people not being able to access our institution. So there's a lot of factors that sort of go into who enrolls in a college. Um, it's not always about where people want to go. It's also about institutional policies dictating who can come, right? And so I think what we're actually going to see in this new phase of higher ed, and you know, I call I call this new phase of higher ed sort of the 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 result of COVID and the significant decline of people going to college, right? You have universities that are struggling for enrollment. I think we're going to see a lot more. We're going to see a lot more initiatives that are incentivizing students to come to their college. I think we're also going to see for colleges that are sort of have low enrollment. I think we're, we're going to see them recruit students from out of state because we know that out of state students are more willing to pay higher fees um, to go to colleges that they want to attend. When colleges used to be super competitive, like, for example, all the public colleges in California, they're really competitive. They really wanted to serve their their constituent, their state's constituents. But with the decline in enrollment, I think we're going to see them recruiting people from outside of a, of California to sort of make up for that enrollment gap. That's just my guess. I love the the future surmising here. How do you think that's going to impact 1.5 generation college students in that scenario? I'm sort of looking at it, right? One of the things I found with Filipino 1.5 generation college students is there's this encouragement to go to college, but... There is also this idea that college was a, resp- a responsibility that 
students had to fulfill for their family um, socioeconomically, right? It better positions their families to uh, be more financially secure. Part of that is the college choice process where a lot of Filipino families with immigrant parents um, for different factors, it could be socioeconomic, it could be um, those having to deal with, I think, gender, et cetera. They often encourage their, their students, their kids to go to college, but more locally. So when I interviewed Filipino 1.5 generation college students, many of them express their aspirations or desires to have have gone out of state to have used it as an opportunity to move away from home and to sort of explore. But that kind of exploration was discouraged because oftentimes families didn't possess the financial capital where it would be a secure decision, right? It would be a financially secure decision. And so I think now sort of this post-COVID era, we're going to see maybe a lot more of that, I think. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors that I think are impacting Asian American college choice. Now we see a lot of Asian American families not only make college decisions based on finances, but we also see it based on issues having to do with racism. There's a lot of anti-Asian racism in higher education. And you could, and understandably, you see families being really concerned about where colleges are located, where um, are those colleges diverse? Do they have the social resources that young people, young Asian American kids would need to actually thrive in a university setting? So I, I think that you know, for Filipino 1.5 generation college students, there's a different college choice process now in uh, sort of this COVID time. Interesting. So you mentioned resources, we're talking about college choice. What are some of the more unique experiences that this group of students face in their higher education journey, whether it's when they are applying, maybe you've touched on that a little bit, or Mm -hmm. if they're enrolled, let's say, and attending classes, what's What's different for 1.5 generation college students? I think their invisibility is probably the biggest issue. Uh, There's a lot of higher ed practitioners and scholars who have no idea that these students with this experience even exist. I think a primary issue faced by these students is that in terms of education, generational status, for them, there's a huge contradiction. And that contradiction is predicated on this gap that exists between parental encouragement for higher ed and the actual transmission of knowledge related to the mechanics of becoming college ready. It's this gap that really defines the 1.5 generation college student experience. It's really a liminal position of being uh, considered a second gen college student by the university, but not necessarily experiencing the expected benefits associated with such a status. And then at the same time, being excluded from many of the support programs initiatives designed to help students whose families might not have the capacity to support them um, in particular ways. And so I think for Filipino 1.5 generation college students, you know, they're really occupying this liminal space that few people know exist and where the resources and policies are not designed to recognize. So with that in mind, what should practitioners who are working in higher education institutions be thinking about when it 
comes to trying to support this group of students. Um, have you seen any good examples of programming or just efforts to intervene or um, otherwise provide that kind of base that the students need so that they're no longer invisible and they become visible? I think with this growing first-generation college student movement in the U.S., I think more attention is going to start to be paid to these students because I think with this whole first-generation college student movement, people realize that earning a degree isn't black and white. I think practitioners are beginning to acknowledge that education generational status, it's complex, right? And it occurs more on a spectrum. So first-gen college students, they're often reduced to students whose parents lack a college degree, and second-gen students are those whose where parents their parents have one. And, and I think practitioners are starting to realize that they need to understand the context around whether or not Practitioner needs to recognize, right, um, the context of when people actually possess degrees, right? So what institution did that degree come from? Um, is it a two-year degree? Is it a four-year degree? You know, I think that all of that is beginning to become more and more debated, right? One example of good practice that I think has challenged the oversimplification of the first-gen experience was at Loyola Marymount University, LMU. It's a Jesuit institution in Los Angeles, California, and it has a sizable Filipino student population. And my mentor, Dr. Latanya Reese Miles, uh, she established the First to Go Community Initiative, which is a comprehensive academic and support service program for first-generation college students. But I think because she was familiar with my work and you know she worked with Filipino students, I think as a means to expand the notion of first generation and to actually capture some of the students often left out of such programs, she defined first generation in a very particular way. She defined a first generation college student as someone who neither parent earned a bachelor's degree in the U.S., and it's that latter part. The key words are in the U.S. And just with that nuance, she opened up eligibility um, for the first to go program to students whose parents had college degrees, but, you know, maybe in another country. I think LMU's first to go program, it really helped to jumpstart this nationwide first gen movement in American higher ed. But I still haven't seen many other programs actually adopt this conceptualization of first-gen college student, where they're actually contextualizing the their the parent parental college degree. What about data collection? Because you've mentioned a couple of times now that it, you mentioned at one point, I think, really tracking whether or not mm. the students where their parents obtained that degree. At what point in the process does that should that data be collected? Um, who, mm -hmm. of course, within the institution should it under FERPA, uh, which is um, the U.S. Oh gosh, I can't remember what it stands for anymore. But FERPA is just the privacy of personal and for our listeners who aren't U.S. based, um, you know, you can't infringe upon that uh, and, mm -hmm. and distribute it even to the students' parents unless they have clearly indicated that you can do that. So that's FERPA. Um, yeah, what kind of data 
really needs to be collected and who needs that data to make sure that these programs are targeting who they need to be targeting. In the U.S., first-generation college student status, it's self-identifiable information. A lot of students don't even realize they're self-identifying as first-generation based on what they mark on their college application. So usually on college applications, there's a section where you're supposed to indicate the highest level of education for your parents, um, uh, particularly if you're a dependent, right? This is for, for traditional students. And that piece of that question right there about highest level of education for parents is usually the data point that institutions will use to identify the number of first-generation college students they have and who their first-generation college students are. I think that that question of highest level of education earned, it could easily be expanded to indicate in the U.S. or not. Um, You know, more, it would be great if there is this, you know, way more nuanced sort of uh, item on a survey that could get into sort of the nuances. But I think even just the addition of in the U.S. or not gives a lot of context and would help to identify those students whose parents have college degrees, but might not be familiar with a U.S. system of education. So that's where I see it as being a easy place to sort of implement a data point. I think for first generation college student programming, I think it's important for them on their materials um, to have students be able to identify if they're a 1.5 generation college student, even having that on the application and then having some sort of language around there would help open up even students being able to identify and acknowledge that they have this experience that is different, right, than first-generation college students, but also different than traditional second-generation college students. So there's different ways that we can collect data around this sort of nuanced experience. Again, it could be at the application level, it could be at a programmatic level, you know, it could be at an institutional level in terms of the different entry and exit surveys that we have students take. And then thinking about data collection, uh, another use of data could be research. So you've done a research on this, uh, and I'm wondering how can research on 1.5 generation college students be taken further? And especially, mm-hmm. do you happen to see any way that perhaps it can be looked at in countries outside of the U.S.? Or do you see this purely as kind of a U.S. term and phenomenon? Well, I don't know the answer to that question because that would have to be researched, <laughs> right? Well, well, well. <laughs> so, you think there might be some ap- applicability of the term outside of the U.S., but we would also have to look at the political context of migration and education in those countries. I think the reason why a 1.5 generation college student experience might be prevalent in the U.S. is because the U.S. is such a a big receiver of migrants who also end up settling here. And so I think a similar sort of migration system would have to also um, be in existence, right, to sort of see if the term applies in another country, right? 
But I also would like to see this research examined in like a comparative way. I would love to see the idea of a 1.5 generation college student be applied to examine other communities, uh, other communities of color. So we can sort of highlight the intersectional experiences um, of more students of color. Uh, so for example, I would really like to see how race and racism play a role in shaping 1.5 generation college students uh, of different racial backgrounds uh, and how their navigation of the contradiction will look different because of the ways that they are racialized. So for example, dear friend, Dr. Ifoma Ama, whose parents are college educated from Nigeria. And, you know, my, my mother is college educated from the Philippines. And we tell a lot of stories to each other about sort of the similarities and expectations for us to have gone to college and be successful in education. But the type of maybe educational racism I experienced being stereotyped as a model minority was very different than the educational racism she experienced in terms of anti-Blackness. And so even though we sort of share this education generational status of being 1.5 generation, in terms of how we're treated in U.S. schools and colleges, that's where um, we differ. So I'd really like to see something like that, more intersectional studies on 1.5 generation college students. And then again, the potential applicability of the term outside of the U.S., I hear a lot about um, the need for more intersectionality. I think that's so common to to search for that now. But I hope that there's people who will be listening to this who will pick up on some of these further research ideas and take them somewhere <laughs> to really build on this. This has been extremely informative, um, and I, I've really enjoyed learning about what exactly 1.5 generation college student means, um, especially with um, Filipino 1.5 generation college students. So thank you so much for talking about this today. And I want to wrap up with a final question, which we ask all of our guests, which mm -hmm. is who was someone or was there a specific experience which was particularly influ influential to your higher education journey or perhaps the development of your professional research in this area? Yeah, I mean, I acknowledged her already, but I would have to say my mother. I don't think I would have developed a love of learning if she didn't share all of her dreams and aspirations around education. And I think for many immigrant parents, their children's education are actually their dreams deferred. I know that that's the case um, in my family. But beyond my mom, I think it was taking ethnic studies courses in the U.S. It was really ethnic studies, which is a field that studies race and racism. Uh, that led to the realization that my community was really invisibilized in American higher ed, despite education being the primary mechanism for our existence in the U.S. So I saw my privilege in accessing college. It almost became like a personal and a political responsibility to document our lives and to open up access for others who sought education at, as an opportunity in the U.S., Wow, a personal and a political responsibility. Um, that's that's intense. That's a lot to carry. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I, but, you know, that's what I think first generation college students and 1.5 generation college students, we do carry that. Yeah. Right. 
We do care. It's uh, again, like I said, our pursuit of higher ed is rarely ever an individual pursuit. It's a collective one. It's a generational one in many ways. That that heavy burden, (laughs) I think, is is, uh, what a lot of uh, first gen and 1.5 gen college students carry with us. And I think that's why institutions need to better recognize that these are students that need to be supported. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Tracy Lachica Buenavista, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Kelly. On our next episode, we'll speak with Golale Makruni, who completed her doctoral dissertation on first-generation migration family students in Finland in 2022. In this episode, we'll talk about how the students perceive themselves and find success in their educational journey. If you liked what you listened to on Thesis today, please follow the podcast and leave us a rating or a comment. Links to relevant work by our guests and their contact information can be found in the show notes. Today's thesis episode does not take position on the issues discussed on the podcast. Opinions expressed on this episode are solely those of the guests or hosts. This podcast is produced and edited by Ekaterina Korinska, Ayla Rubinstein, Tracy Waldman, Kelly Davis, Snow Rose, and Maria Angeles Hidalgo. Original music is produced by Petter Strom. Thanks for listening to Thesis. We'll talk to you next time.